to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. So I'm Tom Patterson. I'm on the faculty here at the uh, Kennedy School, uh, and uh, we have two of the premier scholars in the area of political communication with us today. Uh, One is an old friend, Kathleen Hall Jameson. Watch that old stuff. Uh, (laughs) A long-time friend. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Elizabeth Ware, Packard Professor at Penn's Annenberg School of Communication. Uh, String of extraordinary books. several of them award winners, uh, and they are uh, among the most dog-eared books on my bookshelf. Uh, you know, I think every writer, uh, if they're honest, uh, will say there's a couple of other writers that uh, uh, kind of mimic, uh, both in terms of kind of the questions they look at, the uh, style they write in, and uh, for me, the two over the decades have been uh, Walter Lippmann and uh, Kathleen. So, wow. uh, oh. You should see the underlining in my books, uh, or your books. Or right? the annotating. No, no, no. <laughs> and our other uh, other guest is uh, Jesse Shapiro. Uh, and I hope I don't mess this up too much. The Chukazian uh, family professors are pretty close. Pretty close. Okay. Uh, of economics at Chicago Booth. Uh, all of his degrees are from Harvard, uh, capped by his uh, 2005 PhD in economics. Uh, Jesse is a somewhat rare economist, his colleague uh, Matthew Genskow being another uh, who has a deep interest in the media. Um, and, uh, and like most economists, uh, and unlike myself or Kathleen, he does articles rather than books, uh, but over the last uh, half dozen years has produced uh, some of the best articles in the entire field uh, on political communication. So. I don't know whether you have a preferred order uh, to talk Kathleen in. told me that I should go first. Well, I, was, okay. I was just guessing. Okay. Okay. So, Jesse, welcome. Okay, thanks, everybody. Um, and if you, have, if you have your laptop and you want to follow along with the mathematical version of the talk, you can, you can go here. Um, this is, uh, I'm going to talk about sample things from a few different research articles, um, but Thematically, it's organized along the lines of a chapter that I'm writing with, with my regular collaborator, Matt Jensko, uh, who's also at Chicago, and a guy called Dan Stone at Bowdoin, um, who refused to make the drive down today uh, to help me out. Um, and I just want to talk about, I guess, you know, partisan bias in the marketplace. So you know, what does it mean to have a market for bias? And I guess to, to, to give some content to what do I mean by bias, what, what, what should we be thinking about? Here are three quotes kind of a text-heavy slide, three quotes about the same event on December 2nd, 2003. Fox News wrote of this event, in one of the deadliest reported firefights in Iraq since the fall of the Saddam Hussein regime, U.S. forces killed at least 54 Iraqis and captured eight others while fending off simultaneous convoy ambushes Sunday in the northern city of Samarra. New York Times said, American commanders vowed Monday that the killing of as many as 54 insurgents in the central Iraqi town would serve as a lesson to those fighting the United States But Iraqis disputed the death toll and said anger against America would only rise. And Al Jazeera said, The U.S. military has vowed to continue aggressive tactics after saying it killed 54 Iraqis following an ambush, but commanders admitted they had no proof to back up their claims. The only corpses at Samara's hospital were those of civilians, including two elderly Iranian visitors and a child. Now, as far as I know, none of these 
uh, paragraphs is lying. They're all saying things that are probably factually true in some sense, but they convey by assigning different amounts of credibility to different sources and putting emphasis on different pieces of information, I would submit they convey very different impressions of what I guess in some sense subjectively is the same event. And so this is what I'm going to be talking about today. Different shadings, you can call it bias or slant or whatever you like, different shadings of the same events. Here's another example. It's pithier. Uh, I was here in Cambridge still when this happened, when, when it became legal for same-sex couples to marry in Massachusetts. And Washington Post had a headline, same-sex couples line up early for a marriage made in Massachusetts. That same day, the Washington Times, uh, a more conservative out outlet, said homosexuals marry in Massachusetts, with scare quotes. Okay, again, same event, but maybe a very different uh, impression uh, uh, of that event. Okay, and so today I'm going to talk about a few things that I guess are questions that are kind of raised by uh, uh, these kinds of examples and these kinds of phenomena. Uh, and I won't, you know, I don't think I'll answer these questions, but I'll try to give you some sense of how we have been thinking about them. Uh, first, what is this? So uh, what, abstractly, what is media bias? What should we think it means? Is it bad? Uh, can it ever be good? And what causes it? Like, where does it come from? Why do we see this? Such pervasive variation in how the same events are described by different outlets. And what, if anything, should we do about it? So we have public policy remedies. Uh, should we apply those to the media to try to do something about this phenomenon? And I'm just going to give you kind of a flyover of some of the ideas that we've pursued in our research. Um, not to say that any of these are settled questions, but maybe give you some sense of what kinds of thinking we've brought to them. So I want to start by trying to define a little more concretely what this is. So what does it mean to have biased media? And a good way I have found to think about that is to, instead of trying to answer that question, instead try to answer the inverse question, which is what would unbiased reporting look like? What would it mean to have an unbiased news media? Okay, And go back to my Samara example. Okay, It's December 2nd, 2003. You want to write an unbiased article about what happened in Iraq on that day. What would that even mean? Okay, What would you show? Would you show just a series of unedited photos? Would you just walk around Samara with a head cam and show 24 hours of unedited footage, uh, transcripts of every interview that you took? Um, Days of video footage, days on end of talking to different people, looking at different things, sifting through different facts. That would be a, a pretty useless exercise. Um, and I think what that, what that thought experiment tells us at some level is that selectivity and emphasis of one kind or another are, are kind of intrinsic to the news media. To take another example, think about reporting objectively on something like the economic report of the president. Okay, that's a, that's a book filled with lots of facts, and it comes out every year from this Council of Economic Advisors. Okay, and the 2014 one of, this, one of these books ran to over 400 pages with 80 charts with all kinds of numbers, and that's not to count all the appendices and so on. What would it mean to give an objective sampling of the information in that book? How would you choose what to pick? Would you just hand over as part of the newspaper the entire <coughs> economic report of the president and tell people, go ahead and read it and see for yourself? Okay, what would, the, what would, what would an unbiased account of that uh, suggest. And, and, and I guess, you know, one, uh, uh, maybe a, a little bit of an aside, so, so I guess these examples suggest to me that there's really, it's intrinsic that we have to be selective in what we report and what we emphasize. That's kind of intrinsic to what we're asking the news media to do. One way that the media sometimes address that problem while still trying to seem unbiased or fair is to do what's called balanced reporting. Okay, and I guess a, a, a question is, is balanced reporting really unbiased? So a good example would be the case of global warming. Okay, here's a very representative quote from the LA Times. 
Okay, 1997 ranks as warmest year of the century. New figures raise concerns about risks of global heating. Some remain skeptical of phenomenon. Okay, now the some who remain skeptical of the phenomenon in 1998 includes basically no active climate researchers. So the LA Times is reporting in a technically balanced sense. They're saying on the one hand, on the other hand, but in this case, all of the weight of the actual scientific evidence is on the first hand, not the second hand. So a lot of people have argued that this kind of balance is in fact a form of bias in and of itself, conveying the impression that there is an active scientific debate when in fact there is not. Okay? And that kind of reporting on climate change is actually very common. So even in the 2000s, about a quarter of newspaper paper articles about climate change reference a skeptic, okay? even though skeptics are really not representative of the scientific community. Okay, so I guess one version of what I'm biased would mean is just throw all the data at the consumer, let the reader or the viewer, and let them sort it out. Okay? But if that were really possible, if we could all digest endless amounts of information, had cam footage, photos, the economic report of the president, all the data that's produced by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, we wouldn't need the news media. We'd all just you know, plug ourselves into a USB port someplace and download all the information in the world. The reason we have the news media in the first place as an institution is not just to gather the facts, but also to digest them for us and present them in a way that's interpretable and tells us what to focus on and what not to focus on. Okay, so I would argue that, that you know, really selectivity and, and being selective and, and about what to report and what to emphasize is intrinsic to what reporting is. You can't have the media without that. Okay, so I'm going to make the claim that there's no such thing as media bias in the sense that there's no such thing as unbiased reporting. That doesn't really exist in any meaningful sense. And that's something people have known for a long time. A very famous quote from Learned Hand, which I'm quoting here selectively, um, says, were it possible by some magic telepathy to reproduce an occasion in all its particularity, all reproductions would be interchangeable, but there is no such magic. Okay? You can't have the headcam version of the Samara report. In the production of news, every step involves the conscious intervention. If some news gatherer and two accounts will never be the same. Okay? So you can't have... There's no really such thing. It isn't really a useful benchmark to think about the world of unselective uh, disgorgement of information. Okay, so that leads to, I guess, posing the question about uh, uh, what is media bias or is media bias good a little bit differently. Rather than asking should we have bias or not bias, um, we want to ask the question, okay, we know that the news media are going to have to be selective about what they report. What do we want them to select? So what kind of selection of the underlying facts do we want the news media to present us with? They can't present everything, so they're going to have to pick something. And the question is, what do we want them to select, or what do we want them to emphasize? Okay. So here's a really um, uh, stylized thought experiment that captures how uh, a lot of economists have thought about this problem recently. So... Imagine that uh, uh, I have there's an urn, okay, and the urn is filled with thousands of balls, okay. Some of the balls are red and some of the balls are blue, okay. And uh, uh, Tom's what Tom's going to do is he's going to pick one ball, and you're all going to get a dollar if you guess the right color. So if you guess red and he picks a red ball, you get a dollar. If you guess if you guess blue, he picks a blue ball, you get a dollar, okay. And I'm working for you, okay. I'm your economist friend. Okay, if that's not an oxymoron. And what I get to do is, before Tom chooses, I get to pick 10 balls at random. So I get to learn something about what are the likely contents of this urn. Okay? And before I put them, I get to look at them in private. You can't see the ones I've picked. But before I put them back, I get to pick one of them and show it to you. Okay? 
So if they're all red, I have to show you a red one. If they're all blue, I have to show you a blue one. But if there are nine red and one blue, I can pick which one to show you. I could show you the blue one, or I could show you the red one. Okay. And the question is, what should I show you? And by should, I mean, what would, what would, be, what would be in your interest? What would you like me to do? You can think about that for a minute. <laughs> now, it's, there's an easy case, okay, the case where you might think, you know, something like unbiased behavior would be good. That's the case where you think it's just as likely that, there's a, that, there's, that this urn has mostly blue balls as that this urn has mostly red balls. In that case, what you want me to do is just show you the ball that represents the majority of the ones that I drew. If six of the ten are red, show you the red ball. If six of the ten are blue, show you the blue ball. Okay, that's the easy case. And if they're equal, maybe, I don't know, I flip a coin or, or pick which color I like better. That's kind of an easy case. Okay? But what if you knew that uh, blue ping pong balls are hard to come by? And so you thought it was pretty likely, before you knew anything about what I saw, that most of the balls in most urns in the world are red. Okay? It's hard to get blue ping pong balls. Maybe they're expensive. Maybe they're in short supply right now. I don't know. Okay? Well, in that case... You want me, if I see six, if I see six blue and, one, and four red, you want me to report red, okay? Because that evidence isn't enough to overwhelm your ex-ante prior belief that the urn is most likely majority red, okay? And so in this case, you actually want me to be biased in the sense that you want me to report, show you a red ball, unless there's overwhelming evidence that this is a weird urn that happens to be majority blue, because most of the urns in the world are majority red. So this is a case where you want me to be biased, and in particular biased in exactly the direction of your, the bias in your belief about how the world works, how many balls are red and how many balls are blue. Okay? I'll give you another example where you want me to be biased. Suppose we change the game, and we say, if you guess red and you're right, you're going to get $10. But if you guess blue and you're right, you're only going to get $1. Okay? Now you want to err on the side of guessing red. Like, if you think it's about equally likely that the ball that Tom's going to pull is going to be red or blue, you want to guess red because you want to take the chance of getting the $10 instead of the 1. In that case, again, you want me to be biased towards recommending that you choose red. Okay, you want me to show you a red ball unless I have really, really excellent evidence that the urn consists almost entirely of blue ones. Okay? So that's two examples where uh, you want me to be selective and in a way that is consistent with either your prior information about kinds of urns that exist in the world or your payoff structure, okay? how you're going to be compensated for your guess. Okay? So when do you want your reporting to be biased, or how do you want your reporting to be biased? Well, one case would be you have a strong prior belief in blue or red. Okay? That would be like the first case we talked about. And what is the real-world analog of that? Well, if... if the Wall Street Journal were to endorse, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal were to endorse Hillary Clinton for president, then that would send a strong message, maybe even to many conservatives, that voting for Hillary Clinton would be a good idea. Okay. Or the Wall Street Journal has lost its mind. Or it would tell them that the Wall Street Journal has lost its mind, and I have a paper about that also. <laughs> uh, but if they didn't think the Wall Street Journal had lost their, its mind, they would say, wow, the Wall Street Journal's editorial staff must have seen a lot of really good evidence that there's something special about Hillary Clinton or something terrible about whoever's going to be running against her. Okay, um, So that would be a case where the Wall Street Journal would be acting as a good agent for its conservative readership, for its editorial page, by basically endorsing a Republican unless there's overwhelming evidence that the Democratic candidate is superior. That's exactly what Republican readers would want the Wall Street Journal to do, and that's exactly what they do. Okay, What's another case where you want 
reporting bias. Okay, another case would be where the payoffs of mis the pay consequences of mistakes are not symmetric between the two options. Okay, so for example, tornado sirens are very biased. Okay, they blow uh, most of the time when tornado sirens ring, at least where I live, there's no tornado. Okay, like I live in Chicago, there's basically never a tornado in Chicago, but there actually are somewhat regularly tornado sirens. I've only lived there for seven years and I've heard two. Why? Because telling you that there's a tornado when there's no tornado, it's kind of annoying. You go to the basement for no reason, but it's not that big of a deal. Failing to warn you when, that there's going to be a tornado when there's a tornado, that's bad. That's how you end up in Oz. Okay, so you don't want that. So because the payoffs aren't balanced, the reporting isn't balanced either, they're going to report that there's a tornado if there's even a tiny bit of evidence that, there, that there's a tornado. So that's a case where you definitely, want you definitely want biased reporting. You don't want them to wait until they're really sure there's a tornado to tell you that one's coming. Okay, so those are some canonical cases where you want bias. Okay, now does that mean that you always want bias? Does that mean that you, we should abandon everything we thought we knew coming in and decide that bias reporting is great, unbiased reporting is useless, and there's no point in honesty? Go back to the case where you think most urns in the world consist mostly of red balls. As we said before, you want me to report red unless there's overwhelming evidence the urn is majority blue. But what if I lie to you? What if every now and again, even though I get all red balls, I go and pull a blue one out of my pocket and show it to you? Okay, would that be in your interest? No, that would be very misleading. It would get you to vote blue, okay, thinking that, thinking that uh, uh, be, there must have been overwhelming evidence that the urn was majority blue. You'd pick blue and you'd lose when Tom pulls the, the red ball out of the urn. Okay? So this kind of bias, just outright lying, reporting one thing when you expect me to follow a different reporting strategy, that's bad for you. You would never want me to do that. Okay, and we, in this chapter that we're writing, we are calling these two types of bias filtering, which is just selecting a subset of the facts to report, and distortion, misreporting of the facts. The first kind of bias, which is, I, can, I, I see 10 balls, but I can only show you one of them, that's intrinsic to reporting, just like I said about Samara. I can't show you all the data that I gathered about Samara. can't show you all the charts in the economic report of the president. i got to pick one. Okay, and you're going to want me to bias my filtering towards your prior belief. Okay, the second kind, where actually all the balls are red, but I sneakily uh, pull a blue one out of my pocket, that's what we're calling distortion. That's not intrinsic to reporting, and the reader never wants that. Okay, that's undesirable. And if you're mathematically inclined, you want to see like a deeper proof of those arguments, you can you can check the chapter. Okay, and a more general point that I guess I would make from all this is that. To me, at least, it's more meaningful to think about reporting strategies as being more or less informative than it is to think about them as being more or less biased, okay? Because more biased reports, in some sense, can be more informative reports. And since what readers ultimately want to get or should want to get is information, it's probably more useful to think about which strategies are the most informative than to think about which are the most objective or the least biased. Okay, now... To an economist looking at the data that I showed you at the start, you know, those quotes, a natural question arises, what are the market forces that lead to bias? Where does this come from? Okay, and Tyler Cowen, who's a popular economist blogger, said in 2003 what I would think of as kind of the first and simplest answer to this question, which is that media bias comes from viewers like you. Okay, and what did he mean by that? All right, well, if you look at uh, uh, measures of how the media slant the news, like the fraction of the time a newspaper reports the, uses the phrase death tax instead of the phrase estate tax, that's closely related to the ideological predispositions of their consumers. Okay? 
And so this is a chart that's showing you, if you look at news, U.S. daily newspapers, order their markets from liberal to conservative, those that serve the more conservative markets, meaning more Republican, tend to use the phrase death tax more. Okay? To go back, uh, take the data back about 100, 150 years, you go back to a time when U.S. newspapers would typically explicitly affiliate with a political party. Okay, so it was common for newspapers to say, we are a Republican newspaper, we are a Democratic newspaper. Now that's more uh, subtle. Um, the fraction of the time that a newspaper would choose to be Republican was closely related to the ideology or the, the partisanship of the, of the readers in the market even before the newspaper entered. So a newspaper entering a market that's majority Republican is much more likely to be Republican than a newspaper entering a market that's majority Democratic. And that's true even if we measure ideology before the newspaper ever showed up. Is that true in multi-newspaper communities as well? Yes, it's true in multi-newspaper communities, but the interesting fact is that the second newspaper tries to be different from the first newspaper. So they're both, so if you say take newspapers, take markets 150 years ago with two newspapers, the more Republican are the consumers, the more likely are the first entrant and the second entrant to the market to be Republican, but the first entrant is Republican, that makes it more likely the second will be a Democrat, and that's differentiation. So most of those markets 100 years ago had six to ten newspapers, not one or two papers. What were they doing? So um, depends what you mean by most markets. If you thought about like the typical SMS, SMSAs of more than big cities, yeah, really big cities. Big cities like New York would have a lot of newspapers. Um, most like a city of 100,000 people would have maybe two or three daily newspapers and then a bunch of weeklies. Um, and in those cases, again, you know what you'll see is. The, the, the first newspaper would typically go with the majority of the consumers. The second newspaper will, will do that, but with a bias towards being different from the first newspaper. And then the third looks, again, like uh, uh, choosing based mostly on the customer. That's maybe a stylized way to think about it. Okay. So, so there's a lot of evidence that one of the big drivers of how media report the news is just who their customer is. Okay, why does that matter? Why is it that newspapers that are reporting to Republicans tend to report in a more Republican slanted way? Okay, there are a few reasons for that. One is uh, uh, the filtering reason I gave you before. They're acting as an agent for uh, uh, their readers and they're filtering the news just the way that I would be filtering the earn draws based on your prior beliefs. Okay, one reason is, rep is, is that we've argued at least is that they're trying to maintain a reputation for accuracy. Suppose you think that uh, most urns in the world contain mostly red balls. But you also think that either I'm an honest person or there's some small chance that I'm an economist and therefore I'm going to lie to you. Okay? If I told you, you know, guess what, I just pulled 10 balls out, I can't show you them, but they're all blue, you'd be more likely to think that I was a liar than if I told you I pulled 10 and they're all red. So if I want you to think that I'm an honest person or an accurate person, I'm going to tend to tell you the things that you already believe. Okay, the weatherman in Los Angeles who says it's going to snow tomorrow loses some credibility, okay, unless it actually turns out to snow. And we've argued that that explains some of the, 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 fact, some of the fact that the relationship between how newspapers report the news and, and uh, uh, what their customers want to see. And there's a lot of evidence that's consistent with that. For example, if you ask people, do you believe what this outlet tells you, that's very closely related to the, ma the mash between the ideology of the outlet and the ideology of the person answering the question. So liberals think that NPR is accurate. Conservatives think that Fox News is accurate. 
And then another, there are other reasons, obviously, why people might get bias that's kind of tilted towards their prior beliefs that people have pointed out. One other would be that people just like to hear that they're right. Okay, maybe conservatives just like to hear that Democrats are, uh, are wrong and liberals like to hear that Republicans are wrong. That would be another reason that you could get uh, bias tilted towards the customer, and that's something that, again, people in the economics literature have exploited quite a bit. And, of course, there may be some pure entertainment value in that as well. Okay, so I'm about out of time, so I'm going to skip some of this stuff. You can have some of my time. I can have some of your time. You want me to keep going? Okay. I've only got a couple more slides. So, uh, so these are some of the reasons why consumers get bias. Okay, and then I guess I wanted to spend a little time on maybe more normative perspective. Okay, I've been making a case that the market makes sense and kind of does what people want, but but it's good to step back and ask. If we could design a media market, what are some properties we'd want it to have? Okay, one of the things that we've argued that, that we, are not, we, are, we are late by hundreds of years to making this argument, but one of the things that we've, one of the bandwagons we've, we've joined is arguing that diversity is very important. Okay, a very famous quote from the Supreme Court that the First Amendment rests on the assumption that the widest possible dissemination of information from diverse and antagonistic sources is essential to the welfare of the public. Notice that no matter which kind of bias we're dealing with, whether it's me filtering the earn draws towards your prior or me distorting the earn draws by pulling the blue ball out of my pocket from time to time, if you think about it, you'd be better off having some, having some diversity in your sources. That is, you'd be better off having one person biased towards red and one person biased towards blue than having two people biased towards red and two people biased towards blue. Okay? And that's easy to, to convince yourselves of. And another... Interesting fact, so there's a lot of reasons to think that people should want news from diverse sources. One of the things you might think is true is that actually American consumers don't act like they want that, but they do. Okay, so, for example, in a typical month, almost a third of people who visit, visit RushLimbaugh.com will visit NewYorkTimes.com in that same month. Maybe a more amazing fact is 24% of visitors to Stormfront.org, which is, at least as of a few years ago, the largest white pride website on the Internet, uh, visit New York Times, the New York Times.com in the same month. So even people who are visiting neo-Nazi websites actually spend a fair amount of time on left-of-center uh, mainstream news media, suggesting to me a, a surprising tolerance or taste for uh, diversity of content. And uh, some of our most recent research concerns different kinds of policy interventions for getting diverse news media. And what we found is that, for example... Uh, uh, policies like antitrust exemptions that allow, say, newspapers to collude mm -hmm. against their customers and advertisers are surprisingly effective in increasing diversity without any cost to their customers. Okay? So that there's often policies will give you a double dividend, they'll make the news market more diverse, and they'll actually deliver more news content to the end customer. So they they'll get the things... Diverse, they preserve a market that's already diverse that's fallen in the, the historical case of the JOA, they'll preserve diverse markets. But, uh, 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 or the Newspaper Preservation Act, I guess I should say. But the, the more general point is if we had blanket exemptions of this kind, we could have more diverse media without harming market performance as economists would normally measure it with, with producer and consumer surplus. Okay, so it's uh, coming up Passover. So for those of you who are celebrating here, four questions you can use instead of the usual four questions. Um, so what is media bias? Okay, there's no such thing as unbiased media. Is all bias bad? No. Uh, bias is intrinsic to reporting, and in a lot of ways, bias is good. It's desirable. What causes it? Bias exists because it serves the customer. 
Okay, if I had to give a short the one sentence, of course, all of these things are much more nuanced than this. If I had to give a one sentence answer, that's my answer. And what should we do about it? We should encourage and enable partisan diversity in the news media, and there are a lot of policy levers we can pull to do that, um, some of which we think are actually quite effective. Thanks. My turn. Uh, are we able to get online? Okay, not yet. Not yet. Just do, you want, do you want this thing? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I can just have Jill. All right. Okay, Jill. Thank yeah, you. I won't touch it. Um, we can actually leave the four questions up. Uh, I want to raise the question, what happens when science develops a consensus about something? And scientific consensus is something sometimes dramatically wrong. But what happens when science, science develops a consensus about something and hit the partisan media? Because the policy environment is going to use that science in order to argue about policy alternatives. So what happens when you get that kind of exchange? And what is our self-interest in ensuring that if there is a legitimately formed scientific consensus, it is rigorously interrogated in the scientific community and the journalistic community, but nonetheless communicated so that it can form the policy environment and not selectively used in ways that, ways that distort that debate? And I think one of the things that is problematic is the notion that scientists um, believe that they have to move into the policy arena in order to take policy positions, thereby inviting the partisans in the policy arena to tag the science as partisan, as opposed to the debate about the alternatives that are in the policy arena. So my first concern is that many of the scientists who have entered the policy arena may actually be tainting their ability to let the science stand in its own right. My second concern is that in the journalistic arena, where I think journalists have a primary responsibility to not only transmit those kinds of consensus statements, but also look carefully at what's being offered by the academic community, make sure the academic community, the scholarly community, the science community, is upholding its values. And so when journalists traffic the Lancet article by Wakefield, creating, implying an autism link to the measles vaccine without looking at the Lancet journal to see if there's actually a rebuttal argument there, a rebuttal, art, rebuttal article, they haven't done their job. So they shouldn't have quoted Wakefield in his press conference making a statement that wasn't true to his article, and they should have looked at the whole context of that issue of Lancet to see that there was another perspective being articulated there, and Lancet shouldn't have published that article to start with because it turns out that it was based on bad data, some of it fraudulent. So when the system breaks down and people don't stay in their boxes and perform their functions, we can have really harmful social consequences. So my presupposition is that there is a value for at least some of journalism staying in a role that aspires to the traditional values. And the word is aspire, not that they're going to be able to be unbiased, but the word is aspire. Even in an environment in which there's a high level of partisan media, which is doing little other than reinforcing whatever selective uses of, of evidence are already out there. So that's kind of the backdrop that I'm working from. Tom looks in his book at some of the ways in which the science about climate change was distorted by he said, she said, journalism and a moral equivalent. You see some of it here as well. I'm concerned about specific kinds of selective uses of evidence that make it harder for those in power to take the available evidence and say we have a reasonable probability that we need to act now rather than the future even though we don't have complete certainty because there may be a point at which if we don't act we may not be able to act to avoid consequences that if we could reasonably anticipate them we would not want to see happen. So in that environment I want to make sure that that science gets through to enough in the public so that one can, cannot create an environment that makes it harder to get to policy solutions that one might in retrospect have said I wanted to have. 
20 years or 30 years from now, but you can't have them anymore because you're already past the point at which the decision can have a positive effect. In that context, I'm interested in Arctic sea ice. If you will put up the first lead. So last year, Arctic sea ice increased. Arctic sea ice coverage increased. That's Arctic sea ice extent. I need to go back to the previous thing if you can. So I need to start with the very beginning thing we've got in this. And if we can't, it's okay. Arctic sea ice extent increased. Now, the, one of the problems with science is science doesn't necessarily produce nice, clear findings that always go in exactly the direction that you would like them to go in order to present a clear narrative. If you wanted to say the Arctic is melting, you wouldn't like to see a dramatic sea ice increase, but there actually is one, and science actually reports it. And here's Fox News. If we scroll down a little, we see it was Fox News. Okay, now, yeah, see Fox News? And it reports Arctic sea ice is up 60% in 2013. That is true. That is accurate. That is reflecting the science. And if you looked at it, I'll scroll down just a little more. Over here on the left, let's get my pictures back. Thank you, Jill, you're being wonderful. Give me some pictures. Okay, thank you, thank you. Over here on the left, you've got 2012, and here you've got 2013. Now, that's a pretty dramatic representation. Those are NASA satellite pictures, and that says, boy, there's more Arctic sea ice. Now, that's Fox News. Now, under this, Fox News is saying about a million more square miles. And let's go back to my pictures for a minute. Here we go. One more. Thank you. About a million more square miles of ocean are covered in ice in 2013 than in 2012, a whopping 60% increase. Okay? Now, there's a whole posting under there about Arctic sea ice. And it is framing and visually suggesting that we have a dramatic recovery. The problem with this as journalism that is trying to accurately represent the science is not that these things aren't accurate. It is that they are selectively presented to suggest that this must be representative of something larger, when in fact the trend line from 1979 through 2013 is down. It is a downward trend line. So when journalism takes this kind of information in the partisan news environment and selectively features it increases one's comfort in saying we don't have to do anything. Things are getting better on their own. And in the process, because it's Fox News, it's also priming up identity protection among those conservatives who don't think government should have a role and don't think there should be a, a regulatory structure in place to address this. It's the reason that I'm picking climate change, because climate change has so many identity protective cues in the policy arena not in the science arena where it is describing what it is we're seeing happening. So one question is, when this happens, if you believe the public needs to understand, yes, this is accurate, but the trend line is down, but you've primed up the partisan cues by citing it to Fox, and you're living in an environment in which, in this article, you'll also hear that scientists predicted that by 2013 we would have an ice-free Arctic. Now think about this for a moment. This article is going to inform you that there was a prediction that we'd have an ice-free Arctic in 2013. Well, we not only do not have an ice-free Arctic, we're up 60%. Now what that suggests is science doesn't know how to forecast. It doesn't say science doesn't know how to forecast, but it puts in place something which is actually literally true. A scientist and his team did predict that. It was an outlier prediction. When you look at the analysis of all of the models that are available, which the IPCC, whatever its merits, nonetheless does, you know that when that prediction was made, it was an outlier prediction. Most of the other predictions were not predicting that. But that was made once. When you see this in this context, 
the inference you reasonably draw is, and when those scientists tell you that we've got these problems because of climate change, not to worry, they don't know. They're just wrong. In fact, they just may be reading their ideology into this instead of actually looking up the science is saying, and by the way, they're not disputing these pictures. These are pictures from NASA. So the question for me becomes, in this kind of a partisan environment, when you have people like my best friend, Rush Limbaugh, entering the universe, you get a kind of collusion that looks like this. And I can do the same thing, by the way, on the left. I'm just not prepared to do it today, but I would do it on genetically modified food, which some of you wouldn't be willing to grant the word food for, which will tell you that we're in an ideological debate about the labeling of that science or about the keystone science. I think you make the same case for how we're selectively using evidence over there on the left and here on the right. I just am not prepared to make it right now because I didn't do an experiment on it. But let me talk to you for a moment about what Fox.com talks about when it says, the, it says about a million more square miles of ocean are covered in ice in 2013 than 2012, a whopping 60% increase and a dramatic deviation from the predictions of an ice-free Arctic in 2013. Now put that together with what you're hearing from Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh says, in fact, the Arctic has more ice now than it's had in a long, long time. It's not melting. Everything they're saying is a lie. He also dismisses some science, uh, climate science conclusions as designed to scare people into supporting big government. Now we've got the identity move. You're afraid of big government. This is what those scientists are really doing. This is really a way for them to get more big government. So, says Limbaugh, scaring people into supporting big government is designed to make people feel guilty for destroying the planet so they accept higher taxes and more punitive government proposals and regulations, all for the absolution of sin for destroying the planet. Now, Fox News piece didn't say that. Limbaugh said that, but this evidence is compatible with that. Limbaugh's being a lot less careful. He's basically saying it's all a lie. This never said it was all a lie. Now, here's my question. In this world that we live in of media right now, where you've got the partisan media on the left and the right, you've got all these things in between that I'm not sure what you call them. You've got the Limbaugh stuff that's out there in between. I guess I called it part of an echo chamber at one point. How does science communicate using the media that are left that still aspire to traditional standards? And I'm going to make an argument that I think is compatible with Tom's argument in his most recent book. I think there has to be a way to build a deep knowledge structure inside the reporting community that still aspires to those values, in which the mode of communication is as clear as it can be about the available evidence and deprimes our partisan self and primes up our nonpartisan self. And here I'm going to turn to George Herbert Mead. I don't think we are something that is static and given. I think we are constructed in social space and interrelationships with others, and I think we can feature different facets of ourselves and talk about ourselves differently in different contexts. I think I'm very different when I think of myself as a wife then when I think of myself as a mother, then when I think of myself as a colleague, and I'm still all of those things. But I can prime some up and some down. And you prime me up as mother, and I'll actually interact differently with the people I work with for the next two hours. There's some kinds of things that meld over. I think it is plausible that we are not partisans all of the time, even if we're partisans some of the time, and that some structures are more likely to prime up the parts of us that want the best available evidence. And I think we need to figure out as communication scholars how we access that persona of ourselves and increase the likelihood that it's sitting there as we evaluate scientific evidence. And then we have to make sure the reporting is conveying the science in its fullness and not denying this recovery 
and not denying the trend, but offering both and turning to expertise where warranted in order to make sense of it, to make the argument disclosing how scientists know what for the conclusion, which is the trend line is likely to continue to go downward because the volume under the sea ice is also showing a downward trend, which means across time, when you put those things together, there's a likelihood, not a certainty, all sorts of other things are affecting sea ice, and they do change across time. Winds change across time, drift patterns, et cetera, change across time. But the probability, based on the best of what we can know right now, is the downward trend is going to continue. We're not exactly sure how fast, but it's probably not going to dramatically recover because the trend line has been going down since 1979. So we have set up an experiment that is predicated on the assumption that we can prime up a part of ourselves that wants the best available evidence, and we are going to refuse to make the assumption that when we're being liberals or conservatives, we're being stupid. We're going to assume that conservatives are smart and liberals are smart. The question is, can you tap the part of the liberal and conservative that isn't the liberal or the conservative? It's the one that cares about the evidence. Here's my favorite example of how this works. I don't care whether I'm a liberal or conservative. Tell me I have a cancer diagnosis, and I'm not going to turn to Rush Limbaugh. There are times in which I'm going to look for the best available evidence, and even if I'm not educated, I'm going to get pretty smart pretty quickly about learning about randomized control trials. And if somebody says, lay a trill and go to Mexico, I'm not going to do it because I have enough sense to stay dispassionate because I could die. I want to get that part of me primed up when I'm confronted with claims that may be selective that are inviting partisan cueing and see if I can get it to hold long enough, in this case with conservatives, to put in place what I view as a scientific consensus argument. Here's the stimulus, first part of the experiment. Next. Now we can scroll up, Joe. Stop. Those images are from NASA. Both conservatives and liberals value NASA. One of the few things that conservatives and liberals agree about in credibility is NASA. The percents are very high for conservatives and liberals valuing NASA. Those pictures are from NASA. So I'm going to begin by reminding you, and now please be a conservative for me, I'm going to begin by reminding you conservatives, but it's not going to bother you liberals, you like NASA too, that NASA has real credentials in the space race. That would be defense and protecting our country. That NASA has real expertise. It's really competent. Remember, I already like NASA. This isn't persuasion, this is reinforcement. And by the way, it helps our economy. Now, I'm tapping two sets of conservative values, defense and economy. I'm just trying to reinforce the idea that, you know, you like NASA, I like NASA, all God's children like NASA. <laughs> I'm going to expose you to this message first. Now I'm going to scroll up. So I'm going to scroll, Joe. You're being wonderful. Scroll, keep scrolling. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Now, stop. I want you to watch my animation. But before you do that, I want you to look at my slide. You see Arctic sea ice extent documented by the National Aeronautics Space Administration, Terra Satellite, and the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program. It actually is. I'm not making this up. Conservatives, do we like defense? Let's hear it. Yes. yes. Conservatives, do we like NASA? Yes. yes. How about defense plus NASA? Yeah. Yes. yes. Now they're going to talk to us about sea ice. Yes. And by the way, those pictures are from NASA, so Fox likes NASA too. Play the, the, the video. Okay. Now, I have made you experience the decline. This isn't a static chart, and I'm priming like mad. I've got decline every time there's a decline. I'm not priming recovery. By the way, parenthetically, one of the climate groups 
put up something like this, only they put up the words recovery all the way through, thereby suggesting they do not understand priming. Then we draw the red trend line down so that your eye will have to follow back through what you've just experienced. Now, if you will grant me NASA, if you will grant me Department of Defense, and if we value those things, at this point, I hope I've got you in something that's not partisan space. I hope I've got you in, we value this space. This is okay. I'm going to trust this space. And now I've just charted for you a trend line down, and now I've just contradicted the inference invited by the Fox News piece. Now, remember, my target audience here is conservatives. I've got a randomized experiment. I've got 900-plus people. I've got them in three conditions. The first condition gets Fox only. The second gets Fox plus this. The third gets baseballs with a history of the baseball folks. <laughs> We've got a series of questions. Scroll down slowly, Jill, if you wouldn't mind. Slowly, 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 slowly. Here we go. How accurate is to say that Arctic sea ice extent has been monitored by NASA? Conservatives, just pretend you're answering. Next question. How accurate is it to say that in five earlier years, the extent of Arctic sea ice was lower than in 2013? Now, you can always scroll back up and look at my chart and replay it. So if you're not sure, go back and replay it. How accurate is to say the extent of sea ice increased in 2013? How accurate is to say the extent of Arctic sea ice was lower in 2013 than in 1979? How accurate is to say Arctic sea ice extended to 2013 was the sixth lowest in the satellite record? How accurate is to say that in at least 12 earlier years, the extent of sea ice was lower? That's, by the way, a decoy question. The answer to that is that's inaccurate. But people who can't read a trend line and count everything that's below the trend line instead of leveling at the midpoint are going to get that one wrong. How accurate is to say that of the lowest, that all of the seven lowest extents have occurred in the last seven years? How accurate is to say that in recent years, Arctic sea ice thickness is down from past decades? How accurate is it to say the overall trend of the extent of Arctic sea ice has been downward since 79? Those are all fact questions, and we're not saying interpret it from the chart. We're asking you how accurate it is. My conservatives in the FOX-only condition differ significantly from my conservatives in the condition that have had the exposure. I believe we've moved them into space in which they are looking at the evidence without priming their partisan self back up and counter-arguing themselves all the way through. Now, do I know that? No. This is the first move on this, so we don't actually know anything, except that we've got effects. But maybe that isn't really good enough because, of course, I'm going to get some accuracy short-term with people who've had this strong a stimulus. So let's see whether I've gotten an inference out of them that runs counter to their ideological disposition. Let's look at what we get for the next three questions. How likely do you think it is that the Arctic will have less ice in 20 years than it has now? Now, this is forecasting. We don't know whether it is or not. Scientists think it's likely we will have less, but we don't know. Now, next. How likely do you think it is that in the next five years, the extent of Arctic sea ice will return to where it was in 79? Next question. How likely do you think it is that in the next five years, the extent of Arctic sea ice will return to where it was in 1979? So the, the answer to the third is in the different direction than the answer of the first. We've got two agree, one disagree. I've got significant results among my conservatives on the inferences in the direction of the scientific consensus after exposure against the Fox condition. I've also got, let me see if I can get this right now, because this part I actually have to read. And as many of you know, I don't actually do numbers. This is all Bruce Hardy's work. Uh, we also find effects among those who report that is not too accurate or not accurate at all that scientists have reached a consensus on global warming. Although the effects are smaller, importantly, we find significant effects on climate science doubters 
That is, those who report both that global warming is not a problem at all or not too serious a problem, and also said that predictions in the past by scientists who study the environment have not been too accurate or not accurate at all. So what this suggests is that with groups you wouldn't expect to get the change with, you can get the change with this communication strategy. Last piece, how do you get this to them? They're not going to be reading scientific journals. And if they read scientific journals, they're probably not presented in a way that's compelling anyway. Last argument. We know that the people who expose largely to conservative outlets who do differ, as Tom points out in his book, from people who expose to other outlets in their view of climate change and are more likely to doubt science, as are conservatives, but those who have high conservative media exposure more so. We do know that they also expose, point earlier made, to large amounts of other stuff, largely three things. They expose to network news and to CNN, one category, which I call the mainstream, still in the traditional model of news. Some of you would call it the liberal media. Nonetheless, it's, that's one category. Two, science programming. So things that are on television that constitute science programming. We're seeing an increasing amount of it because it's attracting audiences. And third, they do online searches for science content. Most people say they, they do most of their searching for science content now online. And importantly, those who search online report that they often go to the primary source when they get science information online because they're not sure about what they're reading online. That means I can get this message onto the primary sites, the, the, the agencies that are producing it, and help produce an effect. That means I can put it into a journalistic stream and get it online and potentially have at least exposure among these people. It suggests I can try to push it into mainstream news to the extent that news is hospitable. If the reporters there are deeply knowledgeable enough to understand what it is we're doing and need to do and can find a news forum that is capable of communicating this without feeling they've been co-opted by the scientific community at the end. <laughs> Good. <laughs> So let me ask a first question, and then we're going to open it up. And Jill, you can take that down. And thank you very much. I would like to thank my co-author and presenter, Jill. So, you know, in this kind of flow of information that you have in a in a democratic society, you've got um, you've got values-based messages in the flow. You've got fact-based messages in the flow, um, and. Um, for a long period of time in the United States, the way that we kind of dealt with the values-based mm -hmm. part of the equation was kind of uh, internal diversity, kind of uh, this fairness notion. So you'd read a news story and you'd get this side and you'd get that side. Uh, and there was some of that kind of journalism in Europe as well. Uh, but uh, they also depended on kind of this external diversity that I think uh, you've talked about a bit, where in the media system, right? You're getting uh, some communicators from the left, some from the right, some from the center. So um, it strikes me that um, you can make a really strong argument for the importance of having value-based uh, messages in the flow. Uh, you'd also like, it seems to me, to have fact-based messages in the flow, and that, in fact, they'd be based on facts, right, and not uh, some other version of reality. So. I guess this is more for you, uh, Jesse. So if you take up Kathleen's kind of interest in sort of uh, the aspire to minimize bias, kind of the, the clearest kind of approximation of something we might call fact, uh, kind of what's the, 
What's the strategy there? What's the, where, where's the place for that in this mix that you're talking about? And then we'll just open it up. Well, I think, I mean, I guess my reaction is that in the case, if, if, if you thought you were, think about the case where I'm, uh, I go back to the urn and I'm the agent. If you thought that, you know, like in the case of climate science, depending on how you measure it exactly, 98, 99, 100% of active climate researchers accept some version of the IPCC consensus that there's anthropogenic climate change, then if you're acting as an agent for your readers, you should be presenting that consensus and not present uh, uh, alongside it. Oh, by the way, there are some people who disagree with it, because I guess that sort of muddies the signal. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that would be, I mean, it's biased in some sense because it doesn't present both sides of the issue, but in another way, it's kind of very informative. Uh, and I guess I, you know, part of my take on this is that one of the reasons we don't see that or that we've only recently started seeing that routinely from the mainstream press on, on the topic of climate is that there's a very deeply held conviction that you know reporting should be objective. And what that means in the U.S., uh, which is very different from what it means in Europe, is you know, you've got to sh say what both sides think, no matter how crazy one side is compared to the other side on the science. We fact-check uh, for factcheck.org. Um, claims about the environment when they enter the political arena in a campaign context. And, well, we, as does PolitiFact, as does the fact checker. And they, they, I think, and we, I think, have found a way to navigate some of this by trying to turn to the best available evidence in scholarly places. So when Tim Pawlenty said that there's not a, a consensus about, you know, human-caused climate change, as he said during the primary season in, in 2012, um, Kessler, I believe, no, it's PolitiFact, went to two major scholarly articles in the best of the scholarly journals um, that had surveyed the available literature and come up with the percent of climate scientists who held the position. One of them was the 95%, I think it's an Oreskes finding. Um, and, and another was the same kind of thing, and said, he can't say that against this evidence base unless he provides some other evidence for why he, you know, he says this. And I think that's the move that, that one makes around trying to get to where the consensus is without getting trapped into some other kinds of discussions. Uh, the Washington Post did it about three weeks ago to Obama. I think, by the way, one of the things you, you use to test credibility of media is do they fact-check their own side? So do they fact-check the people whom they've editorially endorsed for president? So Washington Post thinks Barack Obama's a pretty good president. Well, sometimes. Um, and Kessler went after Obama when he made the drought statement attributing the drought in California to climate change. And, you know, Washington Post said there's no evidence that that drought was produced by climate change. You can't talk about specific instances attributed to climate change. And then Kessler did something really smart. He said, and the models of how climate change would affect California would suggest it's going to get wetter, not drier. That's my model of how a journalist takes the best available science and speaks through it in order to contextualize. Uh, I'm Lee Aitken. I've, I was a Paul Shorn's team, but I've been an editor at a lot of national news organizations. Um, and the, uh, the hot trend right now is data visualization. And every, you know, they're laying off other people, but they're beefing up the people who are going to make the charts and the graphs. So you had a chart and a graph. Um, my question is, is, do you see this as a hopeful move, 
board, do you think that the the data visualization people can cherry pick and distort just as well as anyone else? Yeah. They, I mean, would you like to take it first? No, no, please. Okay. Uh, I think it's really important that the data visualization people know a lot about the psychology of how we respond to things. One of the reasons that it's so difficult to contextualize this increase in CI's extent is the fundamental human tendency to take the last event and overgeneralize it into a trend line. I think economists call it the recency effect or the financial analysts call it the recency effect. Prospect theory explains it. Um, and to overvalue a gain from a loss as opposed to just an increase that isn't perceived as a gain following a loss. So when you come in and you say, I'm going to try to get rid of your perception that this is recovery, you're fighting a human bias. You're not just fighting a political disposition to not want to believe it if you're a conservative and have already formed a point of view. You've got the psychology that you've got to grapple with. When they're trying to create visualizations, not understanding that can increase the likelihood that people actually buy into their own biases and mishear or missee or misread what's being visualized. I mean, look, that, that, that recovery, if you want to call it that, in the very end of that, that's a pretty substantial upline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, figuring out how you, you, you maintain their visual capacity to see the overall trend in the face of it is something that's really important. And now the question is, if somebody's got an underlying bias, aren't they just going to translate it into the graphic and objectify and make it more persuasive? That's the danger. But it's the danger with the reporting process and everything else as well. It's the reason that... In, in factcheck.org, we have the liberals and the staff read against the conservatives, and the conservatives read against the liberals, and then I'm a contrarian. I read against everybody. Um, because we're trying to make sure that our biases are read against by somebody else's biases, at least to try to feature that they're there. And I think we, we need, don't need to say that the data people and the graph people are the neutral people. They're, the, they're people, just like the rest of us, and they have to keep their biases in check as best they can. Hi, um, I'm Shoaib. I work for the federal government in Pakistan, so a lot of my friends were sort of reporters. Um, I think that the right to information and is a lot like the right to health. I mean, it's mm -hmm. basic human right. So it should be treated with the same sort of attitude, especially because in a dark way in Pakistan, a lot of reporters get shot and a lot of friends are doctors yep. and reporters. So what I realize is that in Pakistan, we have a really conservative society. So if I take Jesse's view and say that reporting is really just a reflection of what is going on, it's going to continuously feed the conservatism, which is what it has been doing. However, if I take the climate change perspective, it seems to be more sort of ethical and global. It seems that, yes, even though in a particular society there might be 10 red balls and one blue ball, and so in that case, I might want to show the red ball. But if you take a bigger picture, it might be in my interest to actually see the blue ball as well every now and then. So the fact that reporting is unbiased, that there's no such thing as unbiased reporting seems to me a difference between the way you look at reporting. So in the case of climate change, you're taking a global picture, whereas in the case of bias and unbiased and looking at what your consumers want, you're taking a very narrow picture. Do you think there's a middle ground that can be reached? And do you think that it's inevitable that in reporting, you are taking on the same ethical responsibility as a doctor of knowing what's best for the patient? You want to that, give that one to me? Or, or? I want to definitely give that one to you. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's, you know, all, all reporting is going to feature some degree of selection and bias. And in some cases, I think that's really what you want. Like, if, if some reporter thought they had a shred of evidence that Barack Obama 
had stolen a bunch of money from the government, you would want them to apply a very, very high standard before they would put them on the front page of a newspaper. And that's because that's not because you're biased. That's because you you have good reason to think that that's very unlikely, and you would think that you would need a very high standard of evidence before you would want to you would want to make that report. Um, and so there's good reasons why what your readers think is likely to be true is going to play an important role in how you're going to want to select facts and, and episodes to report. But there also are pernicious reasons, like people just like to, you know, people may just feel good when they hear that they're right, and that may lead to, you know, uh, kind of perverse sort of echo chamber type effects where, you know, nobody ever learns anything. And, and so it's not, I guess, my argument was not to say that, um, whatever is reported must be optimal or anything like that, but more that we have to be a little careful in, in assuming that somehow bias is something we can avoid, and rather, the, I guess, the thing we want to ask is what kinds of reporting are likely to be informative given the audience, and that the, the answer to what kind of reports are informative sort of depends who you're talking to. Was, was Kathleen's fuller explanation of the ice biased? Relative to what? To your definition of bias. My definition of bias, there's no such thing. So I don't know. I mean, she, you know, you can always show more information rather than less information, but that comes at a cost. If it didn't, there wouldn't be such a thing as a headline or a front page or an above the fold. Everything would be above the fold. There would just be a really, really, really big newspaper. And so you have to pick, you know, there's no such thing as a benchmark where you don't choose what to say. You have to. I just, I just wonder if. You know, if we're if we're looking for a useful explanation for what bias is, whether saying everything is biased or nothing is biased, you know, given my sense of what you did, Kathleen, is exactly what journalism should do if it's trying to be unbiased, if it's trying to be rooted in evidence and uh, go to authoritative sources and be dispassionate in its perspective. My sense is that you would have had to have you know, put that together regardless of what the yeah. NASA defense uh, contractors said the reality was about the opposite. Yeah. Is that, is, that a, is that an escape from bias in any way, or is it a, are we kidding ourselves? No, I think we need to, to articulate how it is we've selected what we select as part of the presentation. Why did I start with 1979? Because that is the first year that we have satellite pictures. So... You, what is your worry about me? I'm suppressing evidence. They've suppressed evidence. You're worrying I'm suppressing evidence. You should. So I should say to you as part of my disclosure, you, you put up two satellite images. I'm going to go back to the first one we have, and I'm going to give you the last one that we have, and we're about to get another one, by the way. They just reported Arctic sea ice extent. Now, we, we reached the peak and then the low point. The peak is mid-March. Uh, is the fifth lowest of the last satellite record. We just, we just got it. I mean, so I'm, I, my obligation is to give you the latest to the, and to, to explain how I picked those points. And here I'm going to say to you, because there's nothing else I could have given you. Now, you could say, well, there are other satellites. I want the EOS satellite. I want the European satellite. At which point, I need to show the trend is exactly the same in that satellite, but it doesn't cover the same parts of the Arctic. And as a result, you're not going to be able to actually say what I was able to say here, because this is what does the Arctic. And you might say, well, what else is there? Well, I, there's other convergent data. There's measurement of the depth of ice that satellites take, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think I have to be as disclosive as I can about evidence that might counter my framing of this, because there's a framing of this, to your satisfaction as an audience. And one of the nice things about the Internet world is I can deepen these things with linkage in ways that I couldn't before when I was bound by story length. And I can give you interactivity, which I couldn't give you before 
to help you understand. And the way I think of it is, it gets, my, my focus on life is always factcheck.org because that's the journalistic piece I actually have to be responsible for. People say, how do you protect yourself from your biases? Aren't you just picking the, the bad ads on one side and not the same bad ads on the other? And the answer is, we look at every ad that is produced by a presidential candidate from the first moment that person appears to the moment at which the election is over that is able to be found by these methods. Find anything else and we'll pick them up too in every third party group. So we're not going to get a selection bias in the population. We're looking at the population. How do we make sure we're not doing it for debates? We look at every single sentence in every single debate. How do you know you're not doing it with speeches? We don't do speeches. So, I mean, you know, because I worry about my human tendency to try to select things that appeal to me. It, it may not be a political bias. It may be something else. I may be very sensitive to tax on women. And so you, you try to put the compensations in every way that you can. And I think you have an obligation in a journalistic environment to disclose how you've done that so that people understand what your choices were so they can talk back to you and say, you could have done that better. Here's the way you could do it better. And as a result, you can talk to them and say, no, I couldn't, that's not better, or yes, I'll do it. Um, so, Jesse, in your model, you're distinguishing between um, filtering bias and, and distortion. And distortion is the bad thing. Um, and distortion is defined as lying, uh, an act of, of commission. Um, but we all know, sort of in just our regular lives, we treat acts of omission as lying too. Uh, if, you know, if you have kids and you say, what did you do? And they tell you about A and B, but they leave out D, you would not call, think of that as better than saying, I didn't do D. So uh, then that brings me to uh, Kathleen's graphic, which um, was clearly not, uh, uh, there, was, there was not an omission uh, an overt omission, uh, excuse me, commission of anything dishonest, but what was omitted were the blue lines showing yeah. increases. Right. So it is a distortion. Yeah. It is not an object, you know, it, it's there not is a bias in it. There's a deliberate um, bias in it. Right, yeah. right. So, and she's presenting it as normatively good. You started, I, I think you're saying the thing that we really don't want is distortion bias. But uh, it's it's unclear to me that a, uh, it's so easy to identify what that is, and B, it's so obviously uh, normatively good or bad, depending on circumstance. Because if we were, you know, uh, what Alex's question, how do we get towards some semblance of objectivity? I actually disagree. What you are doing is nothing like that. You have an idea of, you know, there's a selective omission in the Fox type story. Uh, they're not committing a lie, but they're omitting context. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to provide that context, and, but I'm going to leave out some other parts of the context because I want you to go in this direction. Um, you know, I mean, there are other questions about whether a, a media organization that has, as it's you know, rightly or wrongly, its value balance would want that graphic without the other labels on it. Um, that's a different question. But uh, it's not obvious to me why that isn't, you know, the same sort of bias. It's just you know, it's just you have a normative idea uh, that may be more grounded in science. That in fact, you need to look at this this way and not that way. Yeah. Well, it's grounded in mathematics. So I mean, the, the, the place that I that I'm I'm pushing is by saying uh, decline and using a red line because I'm using an aversive color, but <clears throat> that is a trend line down mathematically. 
So, you know, the distortion oh, right. would be, the, if, the if the I pretended it was something else. The trend, right, but the, the highlighting and labeling the declines, every decline is followed by, uh, almost every decline in that graph is followed by something of a recovery. It's just the declines out, out, uh, way, outnumber and outweigh the decou yeah. recoveries. But, right. you know, it would be, you know, if you were trying to approximate objectivity, you would either label both of them or neither of them. Yeah. The line is the thing that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's yep. it is. You know, so I don't quite know. But see, then I'm back in Jesse's camp, which is, I, every time I make those selections, I'm going to be biasing in some direction. The question is, what bias do I? I, I and my my argument for why I'm doing this is, if the trend line is down, I need to make sure that you see those things, and you see as a result that when I put the line on them, that's what's being graphed. Yeah. So I have to make a case for why I'm making that selection, and I I do know I'm pushing you when I do it. But, but I, I just think so much of what we are talking about when we wring our hands about you know how horrible partisan bias is are uh, errors of omission as opposed to commission. Not outright saying you know three is five, but saying you know taking part of the story yeah. and leaving out another part of the story. And in your world, I'm not sure that that falls under you know that falls under the same idea of distortion because you didn't define it as that. Right, and I guess, I think, because, and the reason is that selectivity is only bad if the selection isn't, isn't the kind you want. So, well, so I'll give you an example. So, you know, let's say there's, there's a weather, there's a TV weather forecaster in Los Angeles, and they get, that person gets every day, they get 50 different pieces of data about what the weather's going to be tomorrow. And let's say that one day in July, one of the pieces of data says there's going to be a 40-inch blizzard tomorrow. Okay, out of the 50. Do you want them to say, take the time on the television report to say, 49 pieces of evidence said it's going to be 85 degrees and sunny like it has been every day in the history of Los Angeles in July. But one of them said it's going to be, there's going to be a 40-inch blizzard tomorrow, just FYI, so that I'm not hiding anything, or do you want them to cover that up? And I would say you want them to cover it up. It's a waste of your time. Why is that different from, this, from the Arctic sea ice? I think it's really just the eye of the beholder. If you're somebody who thinks it's very unlikely to snow in Los Angeles, which there's objective reason to think, then you, you're comfortable with the, with the weather forecaster ignoring some of that evidence. But if you're somebody who thinks it's really, really unlikely that we should be concerned about anthropogenic climate change, then you're much more comfortable with the way that Fox is, is selecting that evidence. Now, is that, you know, that's from the standpoint of the reader. Now, from the standpoint of society, what do we want to have an informed citizenry? That's a much tougher question, and, and because that takes into account not just how the reader would like the facts presented, but also how we would like them to, to, to learn and approach a different perspective from their own. So that, I guess that's how I'm thinking about it. That, that Arctic sea ice representation on Fox is good for some kinds of readers, some kinds of readers who think, don't show me anything that says that the, there's anthropogenic climate change unless it's super definitive. I don't care. I don't want to hear it because I'm pretty sure it's baloney. That person's comfortable with that kind of report. I mean, I think you just put your finger on it, the difference between the individual good and the social good. Right. Really. There may be a big difference between those. But, but uh, exactly, I agree with that. But I, I'm not saying there aren't values in all of this. And I don't think there actually is such a thing as fact in this tight sense in which it represents the thing. I mean, I'm not in that world. I think there's a thing, what is reasonably knowable with the methods that we have available with a level of certainty that we try as best we can to specify. But we have to act on that. And that's what the consensus communities are about. That's what the scholarly community should be about. That's what the Bureau of Labor Statistics should be about. That's what the Congressional you know, Research Service 
and a CBO are supposed to be about. They're supposed to be the, the, the people who gather as best they can what we can know and specify it as best they can with the margins of error that they, as best they can articulate so that we can say, you know, there may be a better way to know it, but here's everything we did to get there. If you know a better way, you better talk to us. For the moment, this is what we know. We have to have that in a policy arena or we can't act. And one of the things that's happening with this partisan back and forth is we're destabilizing our ability to act because we're challenging everything that is potentially known. I mean, Newt Gingrich actually said that the Congressional Budget Office is a reactionary socialist institution. Now, how you are a reactionary socialist, I do not know. Um, you know, Jack Welsh you know, says the Bureau of Labor Statistics making things up in September. Well, unlikely that it is. If it is, then we can scandal show it, but it's the, it's the custodian of that kind of knowledge through those specified methods within that margin of error with all the uncertainties under it, and it's the only thing we've got to be able to track across time, so unless you've got something better, let's take it for the moment and say it's able to define our universe. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, the knowable. I, I don't actually like the word fact, and I put it in factcheck.org, and so I'm stuck with it. Um, I think journalists are the custodians of the knowable and have obligations to specify so we get context. And I agree with you that most of what we are at least doing most of the time is putting things in context, not saying that, you know, that's not warrantable. And we occasionally say it. We said it when Ms. Rom Romney said that that plant was going to close and all those jobs shipped to China. We said there is no evidence of that, that we are able to find. And those jobs have not been shipped to China since, so we think that that conclusion was vindicated. But in the, for the most part, what we're doing is not calling fact not fact, which is why we don't use a truth meter. Um, we're putting things back into context and saying, you judge, but here's everything we can know. And I, whenever they use the word true, I, t I take it out. So if it slips through factcheck.org, it just means I wasn't reading carefully that day. Sure. Um, thank you guys both for coming and presenting. Um, so Professor Patterson teaches an American politics class here, and during one of the classes he talked about this issue of environmental kind of climate change um, and how our kind of divide within our political system has made it a much more kind of contentious conversation when it wasn't always necessarily. Um, and I left that class feeling kind of depressed about, you know, how we like find knowledge, as you put it, instead of fact. Um, but I find the results from what you're talking about somewhat hopeful, right? You can take um, kind of a different piece of information and people can read through it in their nonpartisan way and be moved. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about when you say the results are significant, what that means, and if you were to implement something like this on a larger scale, what you think the effect would actually be on our policy environment. I mean, the significance claim is just a t-test. It's the, does this group statistically differ from this group in the, in the presence of the exposure? And so, you know, it's, it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, there's, so there's, no, there's nothing fancy under it. it. It's, you know, statistics 101. But what is the magnitude? Um, yeah, it's more like, what does that uh -huh. mean in the world around uh -huh. this? I can't tell you about the world around, but I can tell you, let's see now. Within the world of the experiment. Yes, within the world Jack, of this experiment. Earlier that this is Arctic sort of sea ice extent has been monitored by NASA new. since 19. The T test is 4.98. Um, the P is 0 0.001. That's not a bad effect. You'd expect if you put that in the real world, you'd actually see something. I mean, these, these aren't small effects. The, the effects get small when you get into the tough, tough, tough audience. You get the climate doubters. You're still getting significance, but they're not big. They're just over the level of claiming significance. 
Um, and you'll know, be happy to share the numbers with you if you'd like. But the, the pro problem isn't setting this message up. The problem is finding a delivery mechanism. I mean, Professor Patterson has it right. We, do, we haven't figured out how to get deep knowledge structures and communicative capacities that are able to deliver this within the conventions of existing journalism. And, and, and journalism is so conventionalized, some of these things, that are really dysfunctional when you're trying to communicate the knowable. Because there's always somebody who doubts the knowable. I mean, it's part of the way you make your reputation. I mean, you, you know, I, I challenge that. You know, now you're in news. And there are people who are professional deniers. I mean, you know, they, we, we, we study uh, violence in kids' films. And I can predict, no matter what we find, one academic is going to be quoted saying, no matter how much violence exposure, it never affects a child. Well, it's, it, it's professionally, it's, not, it's healthy to have that. It means that we're always waiting for them. And we're also going to be really, really sure nothing we say is vulnerable to that critique. So let me, let me sometimes it's easier to see in the economic realm uh, how some of this works. In the, uh, so in terms of the stock market, uh, some people make extraordinary reputations by predicting what others are not predicting, right? That this yeah. is going to bottom out. Uh, they get an enormous <clears throat> reputation out of that. And there have been some studies of that. And the probability is that it's more likely they'll be wrong on their next prediction than the other people. So, you know, it gets, it gets really tricky when you're out there in that kind of real world. And uh, there's all this noise that's going on. And Kathleen didn't talk about it very much, but it's not only kind of the will to believe that you're working against, because that's, mm -hmm. that's a big barrier, uh, but the attention level. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what, you're, what you would like to do is not only the journalist to do it better, but you'd like the audience to be more engaged also yeah. in the message yeah. so that they were, in fact, trying to process this in, yeah. in, in realistic ways. And then you start to think about that, and it gets really hard. And then for the journalists, you know, I don't know what the obligation is. Uh, I, I do think they have an obligation to, to go for something as close to what they think the knowledge is and, and to communicate that. Uh, but that's really tough. I mean, so what's the best indicator of... Uh, the Arctic ice cap, you know, is it area, which is what the Fox, or what, what the NASA satellite communicates, or is it ice mass? And I suspect that ice mass is the better indicator, yeah. right? And Fortunately, they both are on the same trend line, so, yeah, yeah. They, although, you know, at the end, and the question then is, is it old or new secondary right, ice? Right, right. So, you know, there, there are just lots of problems and puzzles out there, I think, on all sides of this equation to try to get uh, this piece in, and I and I think that Jesse's quite right. There's a there's a real place for that other kind of communication, right? But how do you get this piece right? I think that's the real yeah. challenge. Well, there's another piece under this which is epistemic. It it is, it, we we don't know what the future is going to is going to do. I mean, you know, the, you're, you're you're making educated guesses about it based on what's knowable. Uh, yeah, and you've got more or less certainty about that. Uh, but at what point are you as an audience willing to make the leap that says if this is irreversible and we have this amount of uncertainty, at what point do you say, I'd better act because if it's irreversible, the consequences are so bad that non-action cannot be justified even if we're wrong? And so now, now you're dealing in the policy arena. I mean, that, that's what the policy people have to talk about. Um, and the, but we never talk about it that way. And we conventionalize campaign debates by saying, absolutely this and absolutely that and you're absolutely wrong instead of allowing for the big inferential leaps we have to make in the face of uncertainty 
to try to do something, particularly when dealing with something like carbon and the climate. And it's like Pascal's wager. You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I argue this out of the Pascalian wager. You know, if you don't know whether there's God or not, you probably should act as if there is. Because if you live the kind of life that assumes there is and you die, well, and there's no God, what's the problem? If you live dissolute life and it turns out, surprise, there's a God, well, you might be paying for eternity. So when in doubt, you know, so I mean, I, I basically argue climate change out of the Pascalian wager. We've got lots of questions here. So, yeah, please, let's start with you. Then we'll come to the table, and then we'll go back there, and then we'll go back there. I'm thinking about this. I'm missing some on this, I'm sure. A bit in terms of a model. So you consider the the body of scientific evidence, and the reporters must take a reduced like uh, information from that body because it's too much. Mm -hmm. Can't ever read it, and so there's going to be some kind of bias. And you suggest reporting the science fully, which could be reporting more of the information, even though you can't report everything. But report more. Um, but there is, I think, sort of a problem when the context matters, but it's not quantitative. For example, there is this, I think I'm getting this right, there's this CBO report a couple of months ago or more than that, that said it was a report about what would be the impacts on unemployment as a function of Obamacare. And you know, there's this big, uh, I guess, debate on the, the conservatives said that there was gonna be a lot more unemployment. You sure this wasn't minimum wage? Uh, I think it was, I think it was Obamacare. Okay. Yeah, but there were. The argument was, well, there'll be more unemployed because, and on one side, people were saying, well, yes, that's because people will be free. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Voluntary the people who didn't need to work to get insurance. And this context about whether or not it was voluntary, it's, it's not, it, it seems like this is something the journalists would have to put in the article and say details about how to interpret this CBO report. You yeah. can't put the whole CBO report up, and yet yeah. he did, uh, I mean, even so, the stat that they put out was this number, but it was uninterpretable without this additional context. And people on the right said it was horrible, people on the left said it was voluntary, so it's okay. So, I was wondering what you would recommend the journalists do in this situation. I'd recommend that the agencies provide clear, cogent digests that accurately represent the content. And I think journals should do it too. Some of the major scholarly journals now in science are starting to digest their articles that they publicize. Because what they're finding is, embarrassingly for our community, that universities are hyping the findings beyond what is justified by the article write-up. And as a result, the media folks go to the university press release and they communicate inappropriately what the knowable is. And that is, they're communicating misinformation about what is known. And some major journals are now putting out their own digest and discouraging universities from writing press releases. There have been a number of studies of university press releases that have found that university press releases hype the science in order to get attention for the scholars. Um, there's also a very large concern in, in, in science that we've had a lot of big retractions lately. And maybe the scholarly mechanisms that we have are not working as well as they should. Science is supposed to be self-correcting, and we need to look carefully at whether our self-corrective mechanisms are working. But to solve your problem, a nice tight digest from CBO, they didn't do a great job on that one. And they didn't do a great job on the minimum wage, which is where I thought you were going either. Um, where there, there was confusion in how it was disseminated. That's an agency communication problem as much as a reporter problem. But if we had deep knowledge and they knew how CBO works as reporters because they were funded adequately by good outlets, then they wouldn't be confused. Please. Jesse, I'm wondering what you think about, um, so when you were talking about this balanced reporting, when 
if instead of saying, you know, there's an expert that is skeptical, there's an expert that um, that believes global warming is a real threat, if they said, actually, there's an expert, they told people the expert distribution. So according to, you know, the, the latest report, we have 98% of experts believe it's real and 2% are skeptical. Do you think that should be the norm instead of doing balanced reporting? And do you think there's a difference between, for example, if I'm um, watching the news and I see a panel of experts and I see, you know, nine of them say one thing and the other one disagrees versus the journalist just giving me a summary of what the experts believe? So, I mean, I, I guess there's two pieces of that question. One is, how do people like to receive information? So, you know, one, it's possible that people would like to get statistics like 98% or, or whatever. I'm not an expert in that. I could imagine that um, for some people it would be more effective to just hear, this is what a leading scientist thinks and there's no rebuttal to that, and, and that might communicate just as well that that's what, in fact, is the consensus position. If you bracket that and you said, let's not worry about, you know, how people like to learn stuff and grant numeracy and all those things, then yeah, I think that would be a more more informative report to make. Raises the question of why you get so many quotes and stuff when you don't really need quotes uh, on a lot of issues. But but if you put that aside, I think that would be a more informative report. And the question is why, you know, why not do that? My guess is the answer is very related to why do you quote experts on both sides, which is that you know if you say 98 out of 100 climate scientists think X, then you may open yourself up to appearing to be uh, tilting the report and and. Uh, that's probably a lot of the reason why journalists are so reluctant to, to do things like that. There's also, however, an accountability function in journalism to hold the science accountable for its own norms. I mean, Galileo was right. There was a consensus on the other side. We've got to have social mechanisms that allow the dissent to be heard if it has a cogent argument that makes some theoretical sense based on some kind of an evidentiary base. So you don't want to close the outlier out but you want to say, you don't just get to be an outlier for being an outlier. There has to be something beyond that. And you, you want your institutions to function well enough that they're rewarding that inside the institutional structures as well. I mean, frankly, look at the IPCC reports across time. They have become more measured across time, in part because of the, the dissenters. Well, that's good for science. I mean, you don't want to suppress that, but you also don't want to confuse the public about where the balance is at the moment. And if you've got to make a decision right now, you're probably better making it based on the consensus of well arrived at rather than on the outliers. And we've got Cochrane and Campbell collaborations to try to help journalists do that. So we've now got some organizations that do try to synthesize knowledge for people in major areas uh, to make it easier to figure out what that what is. Yeah. Jay Markham, and I'm a candidate for US Senate at the moment, Republican Party. And I still have the. Uh, and I'm also a, a former media analyst, uh, uh, and we were going to meet for rolling shots about five or six years ago. Unfortunately, you didn't get a chance to come to Canada. Uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, basically, what, what I see, I, I wrote my dissertation on uh, the philosophy of science, and uh, what we, uh, what I proposed in there was this idea of a local competitive media market, because what I see as part of the problem is how is it do we get past the talking points? How do we get, because you mentioned earlier about uh, what, what it was that blocks people from getting to the real science and, uh, and making real science as part of the discourse. So what, uh, uh, 
what we have is this uh, information moat or moratorium that prevents us from uh, passing uh, the, the talking points. And how do we make access to the information easier uh, for more people? And uh, what I would think, and the question is, do you think this is a good idea, uh, to have a, a, a more free speech initiative within uh, local areas that allow, uh, say, hypotheses to uh, be, uh, I mean, basically the journal system as it is, the, uh, the scientific journal system as it is, is has its own moratoriums going on right at the moment. Uh, their publishing is uh, extremely difficult uh, for a lot of uh, academics trying to uh, move forward in their careers right now at this point. Now, that might have been different 20, 10 years ago, but right now that uh, there's a, basically a blockade on a lot of issues, and one of them is uh, proposed uh, uh, as being climate science, right? And that's basically the scientific issue that, uh, say, a thinking conservative might want to present. Because what about an alternative hypothesis? What about, uh, let's say, now this is a hypothesis, and it might seem wild, but what if there's a, um, a country uh, doing their nuclear tests in the Arctic? And that would uh, perhaps create the, uh, uh, but that's never presented or tested or even brought up. But, but you, you have to have some factual grounding in the hypothesis. So of course, if someone were doing nuclear testing in the Arctic, they're... That would be information that we, we would not necessarily be out in the public. Now, I, I'd like to say that's a hypothesis that's not necessarily true. Uh, and that's just an example. But uh, it, those... those. But I wouldn't of, call that conservative. So I, 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 no. I, 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 want, I want to protect the conservative identity from that claim, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I'm not making that claim. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's just an that's a, 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 a example of a potential hypothesis. That's mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, and, and the, these types of things, the other, the other one is that the sun is doing the warming, that's, that comes up. I actually have to side with the scientists on this particular issue. I do believe that it is a, uh, uh, an issue of, uh, of carbon dioxide and methane uh, and that, uh, but what it is that we do to take the steps to uh, create the uh, the initiatives. Now that's usually where the... the yeah, that's the policy is. arena, and in, in my model, that's where the partisans belong. So, you know, they I mean, there and there are policy debates about efficiency, et cetera, that belong there, and there's expertise there. But I want to try to protect, in this domain, in this kind of science, the voice of the science from that debate. Because once you start saying, cap and trade is it, that's partisan. Now, you know, there are alternatives. Is it maybe nuclear is better? Maybe sequestration is better, et cetera, et cetera. All the people on the other side say, wait a minute, I'm going to you know, doubt your science because I'm afraid you're driving your science to get to a certain point of view, even when you're not. And I'm worried because when you look at the GSS data on perception of the science community, the science community always very proudly says our credibility is extremely high. It is relative to everyone else whose credibility is very low. <laughs> you know, they, they're, yes, they're second from the top, but most people fall into the category that they, they have some trust. And when you put the some plus no together, you're well over 50%, which means there's leverage there attitudinally for people to doubt science. And I don't want the scientist over mucking around in an arena that fundamentally is going to tag whatever the scientist said as a well intention as being partisan and hence right. pollute my science debate back here that I, needs to reform the policy. And let's, we're really getting close on time. So uh, let's, let's do kind of the three questions together and then 
give you two a chance to respond to whatever is said uh, that makes that you'd like to kind of finish up. Uh, so we'll start here and then catch the two here. Yeah. A comment and a question, if I may. Um, there is, I believe, federal legislation which is, is trying to defund NOAA. And we know that the, the state of North Carolina has passed legislation which says you can't talk about sea level rise. Yeah. So there's a, part, a, a, a <coughs> partisanization of science now in, in, where you can't even collect the data. Yeah. And that happens on a lot, in a lot of areas. And it, it happens in, in guns. You're, the, yeah, yeah. Prohibited from using CDC right. money to, to collect data about guns. And, and doctors are not allowed to speak about at, at guns as a public health issue. Right. in Florida and other places. But in, in particular with your experiment, um, you mentioned that there was an environmental group that did blue arrows up, red arrows down, or whatever yeah. color. As but they were trying to argue, there's right. a decline. But it would be interesting to run an experiment looking at that, marking We both, did. And, and then nothing. Yeah. And you've done that? Yeah. Yeah, we still get the effect, but it undercuts the effect somewhat. So the, the, the trend line is still stronger even when you put the recovery in than the recovery prime because we're still priming down by putting the red trend line in. But, but you, drop your, you drop your effect size. And what happens when you don't do either, either of those, either of the arrows? Um, Just the trend line and the data? Um, we still get an effect. Okay. I mean, the, so the, the, but but, you, but you, you prime the effect up and you prime the effect down. But the main thing is the fact that you've got the trend line. And, th and then the question is, do you grant the mathematics? So can you draw a better line? Please. And then, yeah. Um, so you mapped, um, so you were distinguishing between um, selection and, and distortion. Um, I've often taken this in terms of sort of um, part partisan bias versus cognitive bias more recently. And I'm wondering how you would sort of map those to yours, or, or do you think they map cleanly, or do they not? Or do they map messily? Because a, a lot of a lot of the initial push towards discussion of media bias may have started in saying, "Well, it's partisan media bias," but maybe the more interesting thing is cognitive media bias. What is cognitive media bias? Uh, co cognitive biases that may be particularly prevalent. Yeah, mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> Didn't we? I thought we were going to collect questions. Yeah, we are. I'm, I'll, yeah. I'll happily take that one if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, mine was kind of a sneak attack. I kind of had to. I just wanted to ask. Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> That's cheating. We can't do I that. wanted to ask Jesse. Um, you, you mentioned like specific policy levers you were thinking about as potentially really helpful for building a more diverse media ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And this one is we don't really have to get to it, but I was just curious. You sort of mentioned linking and different digital strategies that were sort of helpful. And I was thinking just, this is, I work at the New England Journalism Lab, so this is sort of specific to what I do, but thinking about new media properties like Vox or the 538 that are really focused on, and branding as explainers, um, how do you see that fitting? And I know they're too early to really, to think about their impact, but. Um, I mean, I, depending on what you mean by cognitive bias, um, I do think the question of, you know, how the media represents information is really interesting. And I mean, there's obviously, there's a huge, huge literature on that in communication and journalism studies. You know, how representative are media accounts of what really happens and so on. Um, and I mean, I, I guess the only, 
I have not worked on that problem, so I don't really have much to offer. The only thing that I, I would notice is just, I guess we shouldn't take literally, um, you know, the the proportionality of the reporting as 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 representing as as representing how the reader is going to perceive or the consumer is going to perceive the proportionality of events. So go back to my Los Angeles example. If there were a blizzard, it would get a lot of attention. Yeah. That wouldn't make people think now there's going to be a lot of blizzards in Los Angeles. Probably they would just they would get a lot of attention because it's really unusual and interesting. Right. So, you know, some of that literature I find is like a little too quick to conclude, well, there's an awful lot of weight given to these events and people seem to over-perceive those events and therefore those two are connected. And I find that, you know, maybe is a little loose. But I think for sure there's a lot of interesting questions in how people, both the reporters and the consumers, you know, perceive data and how they extrapolate from recent events or how they aggregate different pieces of information that they've heard. Which may not be partisan. Which may not be partisan, maybe just maybe human. Yeah. And I agree, that's super interesting. Um, and then to your question, I'll just say um, that my wife writes for 538, so I think that is indeed, <laughs> that is indeed the solution to everything. I, I don't read it, but I, I hear it's great. Kathleen. Is that nonpartisan? I don't know. I, I haven't ever looked at it, but she tells me that it's really good. Kathleen, you get the last word. Uh, okay. Uh, the, one of the things that Rush Limbaugh does that's really effective is creates an argumentative structure that says that the liberal media systematically apply a double standard so that liberals are held to one standard and conservatives to another and the conservatives are disadvantaged in the process. Once you see that frame and he pushes you in to, to take a look at the so-called liberal media, you can't not see it because he's got it framed up that way. I think framing, the way in which we frame our experience of journalism sometimes overcomes the diversity of exposure in ways that, that we don't really understand but that are powerful. It doesn't take a lot of exposure if you can lay a tight frame up, and as a result, whatever else I see, I'm locking up through that frame. And I think the question, as I come back into this, is how do we create the framing structure within the public and within, within journalism that invites people to come into this process in a way that gets useful yield for them and isn't playing out their partisan dispositions in non-functional ways. The second point is partisan media perform a very valuable function because they're providing argumentative structures that teach people how to make deep arguments on one side even if using selective evidence. And if you look at them and you look at the partisan structures on the other side and look at them in relationship to each other, you know an enormous amount about where the ideological lay of the land is. And that's very helpful. The question is, can we preserve this other space as well in this environment? Or is the partisan space going to infect the other in a way that makes it more difficult for it to perform two functions, being the custodian of the knowable and holding structures of power accountable, including structures in journalism and science? Jesse, Kathleen, thank you very much. Thank you.